What's up everybody, this is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. My guest for this episode is the absolutely delightful Noah Levine. This conversation is long overdue, considering we recorded the episode when I was in New York a year and a half ago. (laughs) Noah hosts Magic After Hours, the intimate magical experience that happens inside Tannin's Magic after the shop is closed on Tuesday and Wednesday evenings. Noah is a gifted and knowledgeable magician who has spent most of his life dedicated to our art. In the episode, we talk about the merits of a critical class within magic, developing your own style in performance, and Noah shares some great tidbits about performing in different spaces and getting gigs. It was a wonderful chat, and even though the world looks a lot different now than when we had this conversation, I still think you'll have a lot to ponder. Shoot me a message with any questions or feedback you may have to me at elliotterrell.com. Three T's in the middle there. Please review this podcast in your Apple Podcast app, share any episodes you love with friends and people you think will benefit, and check out the new magicalthinkingpodcast.com. It's still a work in progress, but you'll get the idea. Magical Thinking is now also available on Spotify, so if that's your jam, make sure to listen and subscribe there. It helps the show get some more visibility, and I'd really appreciate it. Follow Noah at Magic After Hours on Instagram, and in this wild state of being we're all currently dealing with, make sure to, number one, wash your hands, number two, practice social distancing, and number three, support brick-and-mortar magic shops and small businesses that you love if you are at all able. A lot of these smaller places may not make it out the other side, so let's do everything we can to help out. Anyway, here's my wonderful chat with the charming Noah Levine. Enjoy. this at 100 episodes and then you know whatever i do after that i there's already too much of me on the internet to (laughs) not continue (laughs) right so uh it just seems to make sense that whatever i end up doing i'll i'll still be talking out of my ass in some form or another yeah how many episodes have you done uh 83 ish wow yeah that's cool so coming up on the end are there other people? I'm trying to think about people who are related to both magic and fashion. Not um, really anybody. <laughs> the only per- there's this guy Jay Sabatino who's based in New York. I know Jay. He's yeah. in Tokyo actually. Yeah, yeah. He lives in Tokyo. Yeah. No. Okay, so I guess when I just see him at Tannins, he's just like dipping in. Yeah. Um. But yeah, he's like he knows about both of those things. That's true. Jay's the coolest. Yeah. yeah. He's super cool. Um, yeah. How's New York been? How's this visit? It's been great. It's been really good. Uh, I feel very fortunate that I got to see Derek's last show. Yeah. Um, I feel very fortunate that I got to see Magic After Hours. Yeah, shucks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and I did karaoke for the first time. Oh, with Tony? Yep. I I could have known. Uh, how, what'd you sing? Uh, um, Faithfully by Journey that's a good move yeah um he's like the best at getting people going with karaoke because he just he just goes for it yeah and he's got pipes he does yeah um one time it was adam rubin's birthday Mm -hmm. and um and tamise um who's his uh his partner Mm -hmm. um threw him a surprise karaoke party so it was like this 
collection of different kinds of people. And before Adam showed up, we're all, or maybe right after he showed up, we're all in the basement of this karaoke place and like sort of getting a feel for each other. And he just goes for it. Yeah. It's so great. Um, and it's kind of funny because like his singing voice is, is different in a way from his style of like handling playing cards. Oh yeah. Cause his, his touch is all about like micro finesse and just, just like, perfecting these these moves and like the subtle details yeah like yeah. we think about i think we think about a lot of magic on like a single plane especially with playing cards yeah and he but he's like full 360 um but then when he's singing it's just like pure power yeah tony's <laughs> singing is like tony telling jokes yeah you know, he's he's kind of that same feeling where he's just like he doesn't care what your reaction to the joke is going to be, and he doesn't care what your reaction to the to his singing is going to be. But his jokes are funny, and the singing is good, so it's yeah, like it just brings this joy to everything. Yeah, it's so good. Um, and we're in his house, which yeah. is fun. <laughs> I, later, I want to try to do raise rise to see if I do it better in the home of Tony Chang. You do, I do at least. Yeah, yeah. It's, I figured the humidity is probably perfect. Yeah. It's the, he's he's climatized it for uh, perfect perfect playing card manipulation. Yeah, yeah. You're on the West Coast, right? Yes, I am. Do you notice big differences how cards feel in your hands? Yeah, big difference. Also, I so I grew up in Louisiana, and I had forgotten what humidity like this feels like. Yeah, living in California, I got here on Friday and that was before it started raining, you know, so it was just like you're just walking around breathing through a straw. Yeah. And you forgot that you could sweat between your toes. <laughs> <laughs> or like that little weird place between your, your like the webs of your hands. Yeah. Like you you long ago forgotten about that. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up on the East Coast and I, uh, right around the end of college, I visited San Francisco and I was like, man, my shift's feeling pretty good right now so then i moved to california right after college it's yeah like this is the place for me yeah if you um, want to get better at cards without any effort just move to the west coast yeah because the cards are just they just better yeah um i think it's evened out but i love hearing about you know i, I think especially back in the day that the schools of card handling were so specific like they talk about east coast as snap crackle and pop school of card magic and uh -huh. the west coast is all slow and and soft and i think it's because there's more cross-pollination um but yeah like the like the the dingle style and like yeah i, I miss that kind of <laughs> snap double lift kind of stuff really um sort of sort of yeah does it is it more like a nostalgia for kind of a, a lost form of new york magic or is it maybe like, a little bit and you know i think this is like a gen generalization but even like you know like you look at old pictures of the way people handled cards and like hindu shuffle card magic and <laughs> like i also just associate it with yeah i don't know why it just feels like you picture a guy in like a really well-cut uh gray suit with a fedora doing this like sort of affected style of card handling but like kind of cool like you picked a card see yeah. I don't know. I think about that. <laughs> it's well it's like a 
It's almost like a caricature of of card handling. Yeah, like now, a New York you know? City. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not ready to do a full New York City slickster. Um, yeah, I think about that a lot. Uh, what else do you think about when you're here? Um, when I'm here, I think about the history of the city and kind of the like New York has like an inherent elitism to it that isn't really a thing in California because nobody's from California. <laughs> you mean like elitism like uh like like a a pride of being from New York or just like like a thinking people in New York thinking that they are elite both. Okay. Because like if you if so if you move to New York and you're here for more than Two years, you're a New Yorker, uh, right? You just you have to assimilate so quickly that you become right. the thing that is what New Yorkers are. Yeah. Whereas in L.A., it's like you're just a person who lives in L.A. Got it. I didn't, I didn't understand that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so um, that is very interesting to me. And then you know, in, as far as magic is concerned, what I think about is like. There's so there 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 are great shows here. This is like you know the sort of performance art capital of the world, mm -hmm. uh, and there's so many great technicians here. So there's like this this it's almost a strange disparity between like the great technique of New York and then like the performance opportunities for magic, and and how they are. Like they don't necessarily inter intermingle. It's it's almost like there's a scholarly portion in New York, and then there's like a um, a performance portion in New York. Got it. And there's some overlap, like yourself, uh, but but and Delgadio. But he's I mean even his show is it's there's one really technical thing in the show. Right. But other than that, there it's like a much more theatrical sort of surreal, uh, cerebral thing than like let me show you a card trick you yeah. know what i mean though it's funny because i also i think the second time that i saw the show i was like you know there's a lot of stuff in that show that's super hard that it just it didn't occur to me the first time to kind of put it and think of it in relation to that card set like yeah I, doing origami on stage in front of 100 people yeah like really like that suit and like building a card castle yeah i would be so stressed out just building a <laughs> card castle on stage yeah, so yeah. it's funny that there's like technical stuff in there that because it's not like a second deal or a center deal we don't yeah. think of it as technique but like it's totally yeah there's like some funny little things in there that yeah would really stress me out to do in front of an audience um for sure yeah um but that that's an interesting observation about the city that there's sort of a gap do you feel like because of the castle there's a little bit more room for those two things to come together on the west coast or kind of i would say no okay. I, I mean i would say yes but mostly no because even then like what happens at the castle is more of let me show you a trick than it is any sort of theater. Got it. Um, but there is, there are exceptions and, um, you know, there are little shows that happened around LA, but it's just, mm -hmm. it, it's not really the, uh, the atmosphere, the climate for it. Like there was in New York. Right. Yeah. It's really kind of building into something. It's yeah. It's pretty amazing. And I, 
yeah, I feel super lucky that like I happened to be doing a, a small show while this stuff started to happen and I kind of got to ride the wave of it a yeah. little bit. But it really is sort of amazing that there's like, you know, I think one of the things people talk about with magic a lot is uh, there used to be this thing they'd say, the average person sees one close-up magician in their lifetime, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that was the norm for a very long time. And what's great about that is, you know, if you get to be the first person to have somebody sign their name across the face of a card and then make it go from the middle of the deck to the top, they you totally rock their world. You, you know, you get to have those David Blaine reactions. And yeah. so that's awesome. But there's also this weird dynamic where, you know, when people hear a band they really like, they're like, okay, I, I want to hear all the music from that band. But I also just, I want to hear other bands related to that and like the lead singer's side projects and they just want to expand out. But magic has this kind of funny quality to it where the first magician you see in your head is just like, because it was the moment that you transitioned from just kind of knowing about the world as such and then like seeing an, you know, an amazing thing happen in your hand or close mm -hmm. up, that that's the one that really carves itself into your brain. So I think for a long time, people's relationship to magic was sort of like, uh, I don't love magic that much, but you know, I saw this one guy and he's different from everybody else. Yeah. Um, and I think now it's sort of reached a critical mass where people are like, you know, we, I like magic. So they'll see one magic show and then they want to see a whole, like as many magic shows yeah. as possible. Um, well, we're in an interesting time. I'm sorry to interrupt. Mm -hmm. We're in an interesting time now where people want to sort of be the relative expert of their friends, right? About coffee right. or clothes or knitting or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, it's like they want to have their thing that they know about that they don't necessarily do, but they like to have that sort of clout of being yeah. knowledgeable. Uh, yeah. So that's very helpful to magic too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really great and it's so exciting and it's also such a mental shift. Um, probably for both of us, you're you're younger than me, um, uh, but uh, I'm sure you remember like you know back in the day. There's this thing a lot of of like you know man, I wish people knew more about magic so that you know they could tell the difference between you know, really well executed piece of sleight of hand versus, you know, the delights. Yeah. Because, uh, I, I, I say it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. I say a lot of times it's like, sometimes magic is, is like if, if you, people didn't know how electric guitars worked yeah. or anything about guitars and you see one guy sit down and play some amazing thing on a nylon string, you know, classical, guitar piece and then another guy just gets on an electric guitar and hits out some power chords yeah and he'd be like wow that second guy is <laughs> is worlds beyond the other one yeah and magic is like that a lot but i think now people are starting to develop to develop like a taste and a sense for what they like mm -hmm. um and it's really awesome and i but i also think in magic we're like oh shoot like we got the thing we wanted now we really like <laughs> there, there are now people now who people will, are paying attention who yeah. will sit in a room and watch you do like ace assemblies so it's like hey remember that thing you wanted <laughs> like be on your a game yeah um so that's a really funny transition um uh 
I actually made this kind of funny random observation. Um, it's happened once or twice, I think. There's someone at, at who came into Tannins and, and was working for some company, and they're trying to get information for some project. And he's like, "Oh, but I, you know, I'm not allowed to talk about it, or I signed an NDA." Um, and then, actually, there was a woman at the show last night who who wanted to come to kind of do some research about. Mm-hmm magic and kind of gave me the same thing of like oh i'm doing work but i can't talk about it and it occurred to me it's sort of funny because for a long time the dialogue we had with the world was like we'd do a magic trick the world would be like oh how'd you do that and we'd be like oh i can't talk about it and now like magic is actually popular yeah and people are really into it so so like the world's like hey we want to know more about magic and we're like sure what what is it and they're like oh we can't talk about it yeah so it's sort of like they're flipping they're flipping it around on us yeah the tables Um, have turned yeah uh i don't know i just find that really funny that is really funny yeah i I overheard a little bit of her talking to you last night about it and i was like this is a this is an interesting thing that people are seeking out magic in order to boost it in some way Right, boost visibility, not necessarily the art of magic, but just to boost the visibility of it in some way, one form or another. And she can talk about it. I don't know what she was talking about, and I wasn't eavesdropping well. But uh, <laughs> hey, we're, you know, I think what's fun about that show is everyone's sort of participating in that in that conversation. Yeah. Um. So yeah, well, I don't have a strong sense for that either. But yeah, it's one of the cool things about the show. I get to meet a lot of different people who have. And I get to talk to them afterwards and, yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. So. I, want to, I want to talk about how the show came about, but before we get sure. to that, um, I, I want to touch on the, the critical class in Magic and how it's virtually non-existent. Okay. Um, because I was, I was talking to Derek yesterday, and we talked a little bit about critics and how uh, there, there really aren't any Magic critics other than theater critics who go and see magic shows. Right. And he mentioned in, in, in doing his show that there really wasn't a language to talk about what he was doing and that there, you know, people didn't know how to define it and so on and so forth. And then I was reading reviews of your show Hmm. this morning before you came over. And I was going, even these people who are professional critics don't really know how to talk about magic other than to describe what happened. Right. Which is interesting. And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the importance of a critical class in magic. Or if it isn't important. But yeah, yeah, yeah. a public-facing sort of uh, uh, barometer for what is and isn't good. 100%. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just it's a big challenge because criticism is just all about kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of something and sort of trying to peel away the... The, the facade of it what i would say specifically is um i think I, I learned i learned a kind of an interesting lesson there are a few reviews of the show um that caused me a great deal of stress bef- you know before they came out and um i remember f- for one paper uh i had a cut on my hand and i had like a, a band-aid and so she came to the show and then i'm like waiting by my computer to see if this thing drops and then one night at like midnight i see an email from her and the subject line is just like question dot 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 and i'm like oh jesus uh and the question was basically just why did you have a band-aid on your hand Mm -hmm. um and i was like what did she think 
I had a thing under there. Did she think it was unprofessional and slap? What was going on? Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of asked her about it later and she just said, you know, I was just kind of being a reporter and looking to see if there was some kind of good detail. And, and all, it was just a dry day and my knuckle split. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think there was like one kind of dig in the review. And I, I've noticed a few other reviews she's written where there's like one little dig. And I realized, I, I think for a critic, the, the worst criticism or like the, the most dangerous thing you can do is just be accused of writing kind of puff pieces. Yeah. And I think what can happen is if you just write something that kind of follows the shape and trajectory of the thing that you, uh, you just watched, it, it maybe isn't so valuable as a review because you're just, as you sort of pointed out, you're just kind of restating yeah. what happened. It's and, a summary. Basically. Yeah. And so I think critics need to kind of, so if, if that's kind of like a horizontal progression, I think critics feel like they need to kind of go vertically mm-hmm. and kind of burrow through the work. And so I think that's why um, even if they really like something, um, like this same critic wrote really lovely things about Derek's show, but there are just like a few kind of random like digs in it that just feel sort of, they're just kind of weird. It's like, if you loved the show that much, why would you put that? But I, I think um, they kind of need to do something to show the reader that their gaze is different from just a normal person's gaze. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means sort of tossing in these, little uh, asides. Um, and I think for a long time when people have written reviews about magic shows, it's so easy to just, there are like a million kind of snide whatever things they can say. And I think um, only because the culture is sort of now shifting and people are really excited about magic that that's sort of lessening. Because it is just like if you're a writer and someone tells you to write about magic, if you feel like being kind of like, a little snide and sort of seeing through everything. It's yeah. very like even the best magic show is just very easy to just be like, well, that you know, <laughs> that's fake and that's fake. Yeah, and that's fake. Yeah. Um, and so I think like the vocabulary is starting to develop, and I don't know if it will be about like specific critics emerging or if it's just that you know more general theater critics will mm-hmm. have kind of more language for talking about magic and what they do like and what they don't like. Um, My question is, do you think there's, there should be something from within magic uh, that is public facing? Yeah. uh, I think, um, yeah, sorry about the digression. No, Um, that's yeah. I I think it's just so hard because magic is small. Um, We haven't got used to the idea yet that someone can be just a critic in magic. Um, If someone writes theater reviews, we're not asking, like, well, show us the plays you've written. Mm-hmm. Um, but in magic, there's this thing of, of like, in order to have your opinion be valued, it needs to be built on a foundation of performance and and whatever. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, like sort of the, the phrase of like, oh, yeah, I do a lot of corporate events and private events and, and this and that and this and that. And that's yeah. sort of restaurant work and this and that. Um, but, you know, maybe that's not, what what needs to happen? Yeah. I think. Um, I mean, I think I think you and I both know that some of those pro guys are not very good magicians. A lot of the guys that make their living doing magic, right. just around the country, are not right. good magicians. Yeah. And Tony, who's just you know a fucking hobbyist, is 
he, you know, he makes miracles happen in front of you. Yeah, exactly. He's a brilliant magician, um, but also like has very, really, really good kind of views on magic. Mm. And no, I think you're totally right that being a good critic is sort of about having very high ideals. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes being a, a working professional means that you are making certain concessions. So yeah, I don't think necessarily um, being like a, a kind of working pro necessarily should be the requirement for being able to speak about magic. Um, but that, that's sort of what we've, uh, that is the prevailing wisdom. I, I yeah. yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, there are some like, uh, uh, SH sharp, like he, I mean, he really has like really wild, but kind of amazing thoughts about, um, magic that are just re like really literary and, and just, he really goes for it. Like full kind of magic as the most transcendent of art forms and just it's really f like those thousand and one thoughts are really really fun to read um i think so one of the people who i met when i was really young and who's just had a big influence and is a really good friend is jamie swiss mm -hmm. um and he, like i remember the first time i read those essays it was like nobody was writing like that in yeah. magic before just like dead serious um and, and yeah, I, I love the stuff he's done. And, um, yeah, I think there's definitely space for more of that. Um, and I think it'll emerge organically. I, I don't think there necessarily needs to be like someone to say like, let's make this put together committee. Yeah, I don't think there needs to be someone who's like, I'm going to put together the journal of magic criticism. I think it can sort of start to happen and, and maybe it, you know, we'll try to just sort of raise the level of discourse within the community and um, maybe it can happen that way. Uh, but yeah, it would be cool to have a good magic critic or two. Like just <laughs> just like totally, that's what they do. Yeah. i take it. I think that would be neat. Yeah. I think it would be good for magic too. Yeah. Because there's a lot of just not great stuff. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, there's also like, I think people have difficulty talking about stuff. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've been in these conversations where you're like, it, in magic, any conversation you're having, someone can play devil's advocate. Because if you're talking about ideals, someone can just be like, look, that's not practical. That That's never going to work. You know, what would layman think of that? Yeah. Uh, this is a common one. But then like, if you go to practical then people get all idealistic and they're like, but is that real magic? Is that if you really had magic powers, is that's what you would do? Yeah. So it's like you can never. And so I think for that alone, having some, you know, I think part of what would be great about people who really write critically is not just the, you know, the kind of sharpness of being able to kind of dig in and, and get stuff, but just finding a kind of like an even, like a, a being able to talk about, magic from the same kind of place every time yeah so that we kind of get some i don't know some even observations if that makes sense yeah uh because yeah magic's just really hard to pin down like we're talking about as magicians we are talking about these experiences that other people are having that because we know how these things work like we'll never really be able to 
to actually experience the thing that we are trying to put out. Yeah. Um, which is a really big barrier. Um, so there, there's always, you can be talking about like, but is, is this what a lay person is thinking when, when they see this? Um, so yeah, that's, that's an issue too. And I also think, um, now that magic is becoming again, a lot more popular. And I think there's this sort of growing kind of class of people who, uh, they're not really magicians. They're not amateur magicians, but they're also not like, you know, the person who just learned one magic trick when they were a kid. People who are like fans of magic and maybe they like buy something every once in a while, but they kind of for all intents and purposes are still lay people, mm -hmm. um, but, but kind of coming at it from sort of the inside. And I actually think that's really cool because again, these, these are people who um, kind of are, are viewing magic from feeling like they're on the inside and they do know a little bit about how things work. Um, and I think that as that, that group's going to get a lot bigger. Um, and I think that'll change things. There's going to be a, a much bigger audience of people who, you know, they know who people are and, and they know about some of these books and, and they can, you know, tell from the way someone holds a deck of cards, whether, whether they've spent a lot of time with them or not. Mm -hmm. So I think that'll be a big part of it too. Yeah, I think uh, I think the internet is playing a big part in that. I mean, that's you know what a reductive statement. <laughs> I think the internet is important. That's no, um, huge. But I mean, like you know, with YouTube and social media, people it it is becoming more and more visible. Not just what you know you see on Fool Us or what's on America's Got Talent, but just like people in their uh, yeah, we can hear the honking. <laughs> um, people in their just their. Uh, free time their leisure time can easily find magic without necessarily searching for it yeah yeah you know and you know people will fall down these is it rabbit holes or wormhole what, what's it called when you just like go on a youtube binge of like clicking different things i or i hear a I hear a youtube wormhole that's okay what I hear. Yeah. yeah i mean i think you'll meet people and you can tell when they like they, they've had one of those two in the morning nights where they're just like, okay, let's listen to some journey. And then like, okay, Arnel Pineda is from the Philippines. He's great. He's the new lead singer. Journey. Oh, there's a great magician from the Philippines. Let's watch some magic videos. Like, yeah. Just kind of crazy. <laughs> those, those, those kinds of nights I think people will have. Um, but yeah, it's cool. People are, people are seeing a lot of magic. Someone just showed me this. Have you seen this yeah. young thing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's like so for the listeners it's it's the thing where one hand is in front of the other and you make it appear like yeah what your hand is moving through the other hand i really think that you know when when you and i are both old men that's that's going to take the place of the thumb thing i'm already convinced that that is going to be like the trick that your your crazy uncle is like i learned this on the internet You're like <laughs> oh the internet is so lame man. uh but that's going to be like it's so gotta practice it it looks yeah it, it's it, it looks, looks super cool yeah um so yeah it, but it's also like it's so great that like something that analog can can just have a venue for just spreading 
like wildfire. It's like it feels like it could be the like the village 1500s or something like that. <laughs> there is a man who makes his hand pass through one hand. Uh, yeah. So that's that's pretty nuts. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, it's I, like and that. I don't know that the person like I saw the the video of the Asian woman doing it, right? Okay. Did you see that? No, I've never seen a video. I just saw someone did it for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. I so I saw a video of an Asian woman doing it and then that was my first introduction to it. And then over the course of several days, I saw many more videos of like young kids doing it, YouTubers doing it, and it just it's one of those weird things that transcends you know, age, race, creed, blah, whatever. It's like, it just is, it's so weird and so visual and visceral that everybody goes, yeah, well, I want to try. And yeah, yeah. that's so good. It's really funny. Someone, I think there are a couple different subtleties on that. I don't remember what they are, but (laughs) come out with, come out with a lecture. The real work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, so let's talk about the show. How did, what, let's talk about you. We'll talk about the show later because that leads up to the show. What, what was, how did you start in magic? Um, cause we don't know each other very well. Yeah. And I really don't know a lot about you. Yeah. We met once or we met on my birthday one time. Yep. That was really is. fun. Yep. Um, let's see. I'm from Massachusetts and, uh, I've been interested in magic basically as long as I can remember. Um, I don't have like, I think most of us have that like pat like, I was in a Walmart in 1973 <laughs> and I saw a kit for the Marshall Brody. I, yeah. I don't actually know what the first kind of hit was. Yeah. What my what I normally tell people is, um, you ever watch Reading Rainbow? Of course. So there's an episode with Blackstone. Neat. And I think that was like my first real sense of it. And uh, I found out a funny thing, which is that if you go on Netflix um, and you watch that episode that you haven't seen in 25 years that got you into magic, you just start weeping uncontrolled. So that that turns oh, out wow. to be a thing. Um, That's amazing. But yeah, I think that that is just like, oh my God. <laughs> um, but it's, I think that got me into magic and um, there were uh, a couple of magic shops in Massachusetts, the Ray Goulet's Magic Art Studio um, and Hank Lee's. And so I think after kind of being interested in magic and, you know, family friends showing you how to pull coin from behind your elbow and and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. um, I went to those stores and like learned a lot there. And um, there was an SYM chapter um, and I joined that and just learned I think being around other magicians who are my age is really, really important. So I learned a lot from that and kind of just kept going with it. Yeah. But that was like how I kind of initially got into magic and started learning stuff and taking it all over. What was your interest when you were young? Um, Magic wise. Was it close up or were you interested in, you know, bigger... Blackstone-y. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like, all of us have a, a, a yellow handkerchief somewhere in one of our drawers. Even even the slickest card man am, amongst us has, has one of those and some sponge rabbits somewhere. Um, so I think I was just into, like, the whole thing. And then I, I have this theory that 
it's important to be careful about the first thing that you receive praise for as a child because it's probably what you're going to just end up doing mm-hmm. your whole life. So so one year there was like a a magic competition. Our SYM had a magic competition. I think I was like 11 mm-hmm. and I just like did a card trick and I don't think I won, but I think I placed or something like that. Yeah. And so then I was like, oh, close up man. I like this close up magic. I associate this with being praised. Yeah. Um, but so that sort of, I think around 12, 13 started getting a lot more serious about um, close up magic and a few kids in my school started getting into magic, yeah. which was actually really good because like they would start getting really good at things that I couldn't do yet. And I was like, oh, shoot, I got to keep up. I can't just be kind of resting on this one or two moves I know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that really helped me get focused on, uh, on close-up magic. Um, and yeah, I just, I, it never was like a... It was never like a conscious, like, I am interested in this thing. It was just like, magic is a thing. How could I be fascinated by this, fascinated by anything else? Yeah. I was just sort of immediately um, part of my world. And, yeah, I started reading and kind of dipping into that and just getting to kind of be exploring other people's work and, you know, especially... Was that structured at all for you? I mean, did you self structure when you were when you were sort of young into it? Yeah, was there like a self awareness? I think a little bit. Mm-hmm. The the one thing that I did that I like, I wish I could do this again, but I think it was probably I was about that age. I started a notebook on magic theory, and I would just like when I read a cool thing in a book, I would sort of like try to summarize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I totally don't. I don't think I have the determination to like keep that going, but I'm still just shocked of like all the different things I could have done that I just had this like book of like summary of some of the Tommy Wonder stuff and the Ascanio stuff and the Slidini stuff. And I'm sure it's just totally generalizing it. Yeah. Um, but so that was kind of conscious and like I, I worked through the card college books, but in a little bit of a scattered way. Um, I, I think it was pretty, it was pretty random. Um, I remember one of our, I think our, our initial reason for getting to know each other is Ricky Smith. Yeah. Um, who I, I don't think I could like a person, place, or thing better than I like Ricky Smith. He's just I, I agree. the greatest. <laughs> and uh, when we work, both worked for the Conjuring Arts Research Center, I got to be around him a lot. And I remember one time we were on a train and we were talking about magic books. And I was like... Yeah, you know, the thing I love is like the way, you know, you don't have to read the books cover to cover. You just kind of skip around and find stuff you like and this and that. And he is just like, I read all of the books cover to cover and learn everything. And I was super embarrassed. (laughs) Um, And that's totally like, that's totally a Ricky thing where, you know, he'll do a move and you're like, man, where's that from? And he's like, oh, it's from By Forces Unseen. And you're like, oh, I guess I didn't read that close enough. Yeah. Um. But, but yeah, so it was, it was pretty scattered and like, uh, I loved the magazines. I loved the genie forum. Um, I loved, uh, just, I loved all the Richard Kaufman books, just that whole world of stuff. Um, and so I, there wasn't like a conscious, 
I don't think there was necessarily a conscious effort to like structure it in a regimented way. Yeah. Um, but I guess some some pattern emerged. I don't quite know what it what it is or what it was, but something something emerged. Um, yeah. And then, then what? <laughs> so, yeah. So high school, really into magic, and started going to Tannen's magic camp and just being around other young magicians was amazing. Uh, when I was like fifteen or sixteen, I think I I met Jamie Swiss and started sending emails back and forth with him and um especially at the time he was like the greatest emailer in history like you if you you know like you you look at old letters you're like man i miss those days when people like wrote long letters to each other yeah he was just like totally game like you could just send i would just send him any question and he'd just like bam like right back with this like awesome response filled with knowledge and ideas and so like it was really perfect because I was right in the place in my life uh and specifically with magic where you just have like a ton of questions yeah and you just you want to be a sponge and just absorb and he's just like just like anything it's like playing tennis he with was someone like game on, yeah. you're just like here I'm gonna serve this boom like yeah and really like uh, uh very sweet and and generous not like yeah i would just be like oh i read about this michael skinner thing he's like let me tell you everything about michael skinner um so that really just helped me take the stuff seriously and just kind of focus my reading and um but he also kind of pushed me to like you know work on a couple things that you can kind of do for a bigger audience. And I was like, wow, that's not cool. I don't want to do that. Just just do it. Um, And it it ended up being like, I I started working on the egg bag, which I I just, I don't know why. I just was like, I had read a magic magazine where they talked about, I think they talked about John Carney being a great egg bag worker. And I, I was just like, yeah, there's people who just like the same way that, you know, there's like a guitar player. They just, they, they walk around town with their egg in the bag over their shoulder and, you know, a toothpick in their mouth and they bust it out. And so I got really into that trick and started doing it. Um, and yeah, just trying to kind of perform a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and what were you learning in those early days of performing about yourself? Uh, that I was terrified of performing. Um, well, everybody is at first. Yeah. Um, I... Maybe that's not true. I don't know that that's true. It took a long time. I never, I I, I felt like, I never really felt like I was able to kind of put across what I wanted to put across as a performer. I always felt like I did fine, um, but never, it never quite felt natural. Um, And it always felt like the, the kind of inner world was the main reason. I think a lot of us have this of like, um, the inner world is really the thing and, you know, I, I guess I'll perform it every once in a while and just, just to kind of like, cause I guess that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So it took a while for those things to kind of come together. Um, but yeah, I was just always trying to learn as much as I could and kind of figure out where I stood with things. And then I went to college for a year and then took a year off and made coffee and then <laughs> went back to college different college i went to bard college 
And um, I really kind of let myself get into the stuff I was studying because, you know, we've all heard that, you know, the Vernon thing and other people, good magicians should know about other stuff. And I I think I just had a sense that in order to kind of keep pushing, I needed to kind of bring some other kinds of ideas into my brain. Um, And so I really got into that and I did like, one or two magic shows while I was in school. And it, it was actually really great. Um, Bard is a, a really good school, but they have a big arts program, which I wasn't part of, but I hung out with some of those folks. And it was really great to be around um, people who are artists because in magic, we have these big discussions. Is magic an art? Isn't magic an art. Is it art with a capital A or a lowercase a? Um, and to be around people who are just really matter of fact, like, yeah, I made this piece of art. I don't know if it's good or not, or I don't know if, I, but, but just like that, that word you just kind of throw around because mm-hmm. the moment you create something, um, you're, you're making art. Uh, and so to kind of be around people who actually were really excited about magic and kind of didn't, didn't have negative associations with it and just thought it was really special. Um, really kind of helped me look at this stuff and appreciate it. Yeah. So that was great. And then after college, I moved to California and made coffee for a year and just did a lot of reading and basically didn't touch a deck of cards and then um, decided I wanted to try to start doing this stuff professionally and I basically kind of made it like I quit my job and made it like my job. Like I would go to a library every day and put in, like I'd make a lunch and sit in front of a computer for eight hours. And I basically just was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I know that if I go to the library and sit at my computer for eight hours and focus on trying to make magic stuff happen, by the end of the day, I will have done good things. Like I'll just, I'll just have to come up with stuff to kind of do. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of learned how to not, not cold call, but I, I like to write. So I would write a lot of cold emails to like venues and restaurants and, and kind of just realized like if you just send them well written, but at quantity, mm-hmm. um, you know, like a couple hundred, you'll get some bites. And because, you know, it's like mentalism. Like if, if you email 200 businesses and talk, you know, about magic, one of those businesses had a meeting yesterday and randomly they said, man, you know, we really need, we need some kind of, uh, some sort of performance, but not a musician, something yeah. unusual. <laughs> so it really, like you get this great hit and they're like, we were just talking about this. So um, I managed to kind of pull a few things together and, did a few gigs and how were you selecting the places you were emailing? I um I just Yelp just like no everybody. Uh, what was yeah, I did you? I would use Yelp for like bars and stuff, mm-hmm. but I tried to. I think there's this thing that we get told in magic of like just do it anywhere. Go to a Denny's. Go to a go to any dive anywhere. Get on stage. Anything you can. Yeah, and I think that's true. Um, and I've done that. Like my my first gig in San Francisco was at. A an Irish pub slash Indian curry house, 
Um, <laughs> and so it's just kind of crazy to get my feet wet. But yeah. I think it's important to do magic in a place that really makes you feel like you have to kind of raise your game in a way that does feel a little intimidating. So I would try to find a place that kind of made my heart go pitter-patter. Like, oh man, that would be really special if I got it. Um, that, so that was kind of how I selected places and then um, made a few things happen. And knowing how to do that and having kind of done magic in a vacuum, because I didn't really know any magicians in the Bay Area. Yeah. When I moved, I kind of think of it as moving back to New York. Um, those skills came in really handy because I, I kind of knew how to make a little bit of work happen from scratch mm -hmm. um, and, and build some momentum that way. And uh, got a job at Tannins from Adam Blumenthal because he's awesome. And I got a job at uh, the Conjuring Arts Research Center with Bill Kalush because he's awesome. And that really helped me like get landed. And from there, I just sort of I got like a regular gig doing walk around magic at a nice hotel and started kind of doing more stuff. I started doing Monday Night Magic. Um, our mitzvahs and uh that was like a really big that's kind of been a big chunk of my life for the last i guess six years or yeah so what was your approach when you were doing walk around um i it's it's changed so the place that i first was doing which was this like pretty nice um hotel which i was really glad that i got that gig because it really forced me to kind of grow up quick and just develop a little bit of polish but it was like an exceptionally i would say subdued place mm -hmm. um it's it was like a lounge but only had seating so there's no standing um and you know there were people there who were there to relax but there are also people there you know cutting real estate deals or people there uh m married people on dates with people who they're not married to. Um, but you know, also so a swanky establishment. Yeah. But like also, you know, there'd be people who were in, cause the lounge also, there was some food. So sometimes there'd be people who were staying in town because they were having surgery at a hospital. So it was just like a, a real mix. So I really had to be kind of exceptionally tactful in the way that I approached people. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of one thing. Um, doing like bar mitzvahs and walk around stuff. Uh, I just sort of slowly learned to interrupt conversations. Um, one of the things I kind of figured out was I always had this idea that once I got really good at walk around magic, but this, the approach is the thing that stresses everybody out. It's like, you know, someday I'll just be so confident and charming that I'll just be able to sashay into the room and interrupt any conversation I want and they'll just instantly say oh we'll forget about what we're talking about do some magic and I kind of made peace with the fact that like the fact that that doesn't feel comfortable to me or natural to me is actually a good thing like the person I want to have a conversation with at a party is the person who is self-aware and socially aware enough to know that interrupting a conversation is a fundamentally unnatural thing. Whereas the person who just like waltzes up and expects, you know, all the doors to open and for eight people to stop their conversation, um, that it's just like not a natural thing. So I kind of just made peace with 
with um, just letting it be a little funny for a minute. Um, and and so I also had read uh, Eric Mead's book where he talks about yeah. kind of introducing yourself and I'm not becoming a part of the group. I'm not a hundredth as cool as Eric who can just like, he's just the coolest guy in the world. So, but I kind of liked that idea. So a lot of times what I'll do if I see a group is if I can make eye contact with one person and, and walk up and introduce myself and shake my hand and sort of pivot in, I like to introduce myself to everyone in the group before I tell them I'm a magician. Yeah. Um, cause it, it feels like good practice just to, to know what it feels like for about 15 to 20 seconds to just walk up to a group of people cold and introduce yourself like a normal, like a normal person would like yeah. feeling a little weird about it. And then I kind of transition into the, the magic stuff. Um, what I have found at private parties is that like, I've learned to not really give them a choice because I think the psychology is pretty sound that when you say, Hey, do you want to see something? They're like, Oh, I don't know. Maybe. But if, if you just kind of, it feels weird and unnatural, but I mean, obviously try to be a little sensitive, but, um, you kind of have to push it through. And the, the analogy I think of is like, if you're at a party and you know, one of those people walks up to you with a tray of hors d'oeuvres and they're like, hi, would you like some of this mini fish taco? You're like, I don't know, I'm good. But if, if the chef walks out and they have a plate with a single fish taco on it and they say, hey, I made this for you. I really want you to try it. You're going to eat it immediately. You're not going to ask what it is. Um, so trying to have that mindset of yeah. like, I have something I want to show you. It's going to be worth it. Um, not necessarily articulating it that way. So That's great. And thank you for that also. Because I never, I, I ask that question to a lot of people that are professionals that I've talked to. And they have varying answers. And I just, I have never been the kind of person to just walk up. Like, I love, I love what Chad used to do when he would do walk around is he would walk up and he would go, uh, he, he had a name tag on, or it, no, he didn't have a name tag and he would go, hi, my name's Chad Long. Uh, I just wanted to check in, make sure everything was okay. We have a magician in the house tonight. <laughs> if you'd like, I can send him over. And then they would go, yes or no. And then he would just turn around and put it on his name tag or whatever. And then go, hi, I'm the magician. You know, and do that. That's really cool. And, but, and, but that's very Chad, too. And But, you know, it's like yeah. it's fun and funny and interesting. And he can do that. But, like, a lot of the answers I've, I've heard and I've gotten. And that's the point is to get a bunch and just kind of feel it out. And, and for everybody listening. But that resonates with me is, like, the idea of just kind of knowing that you have something that's them, that's worth them experiencing. But also being socially aware enough and being self-aware enough to like half tact when you're yeah. with a group of people you don't know. Yeah, and it's totally fine. Um, I will also say um, I, I went to a few, my um, fiance works for a, a foundation. And so one or two times we've gone to like fairly high end uh like charity banquets, yeah. which are like the exact. So in a few cases, they were actually at venues that I had also late at other times been hired to do walk around magic for events that were structured in the exact same way. Yeah. So being there for that cocktail hour and realizing like that nobody knows each other. The people who are grouped together are like, 
you know, they work together and then there's like significant others and nobody wants to like say the wrong thing. And everyone is just des like so desperate for a person to come up and be like, hey, you guys want me to do some talking for a while so that you don't have to make small talk? <laughs> and so just realize making that mental shift yeah. that like people really want something, something to happen. They're so down. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I wish there was a magician here. It doesn't matter what they're doing. I could watch the 21 card trick. Yeah. Um, so that, that I just really don't helped. want to talk to fucking Nancy anymore. <laughs> yeah, or just like I don't I don't know if Nancy wants to talk to me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was really helpful. Um, but I also think that that conditions really affect um, the situation. There's a restaurant called Ninja where a number of really good magicians work. Um, one of them's named Mike Patrick, and his like this is a place where people go to have a wild time expecting crazy things so his approach is very very different um and i'll also say i've sort of gotten turned off of the idea of restaurant magic i was at a restaurant last weekend in connecticut and i forgot that restaurants outside of new york city have like actual floor space and i realized <laughs> it made me understand why restaurant magic is such a viable concept because so much space in between the tables and plenty to do but I've just gotten so used to these like cramp, even really nice restaurants. Sometimes you have to walk through the kitchen to get to the bathroom yeah. in New York City. Um, and so like doing magic in a situation like that is just not going to happen. Uh, so, yeah, I think also conditions kind of dictate um, how you approach a group. But For uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's about context. Totally. Um, which is one of the most incredible things about your show that you're doing is the context of the magic show is what well, you be please um so the show is called magic after hours it takes place at tannin's magic shop and it kind of uses tannin's as a as a backdrop and i, I kind of think of the show as two parts the first part is sort of about the front of the store and just that experience we've all had of visiting a magic shop for the first time and buying a trick and learning about it and maybe being disappointed and sort of studying increasingly more difficult magic tricks. And the second part is kind of about that, the back room mentality, whether it's a literal back room or not, of these magic tricks that you can't just buy, um, that someone has to show you or that you have to dig out of a book. And, uh, yeah, I, I just feel so lucky that to have access to a space like that because it just is a really fun place to do magic for people. And it allows for a lot of things that I wouldn't normally allow for, um, is also really overwhelming because actually you, you would, um, relate to this. I remember when you would read magic books as a kid and they would say, you know, uh, sew a pocket into your, you know, tails. And you would instantly, I don't know about you, you'd skip over it. You're like, I don't own tails. I don't, yeah. I don't have, I don't have uh, a cravat or a cummerbund. Um, and then when you get older and you have this day, also like the Guy Hollingworth stuff, uh, <laughs> but you have this day when you're like, oh, shoot, I own three suits and there's hundreds of magic tricks that I skipped over. I got to go back. Yeah. Um, and so I think in magic, for most of us who are into close-up stuff, the way we kind of grew was really 
about purity and just normal people of this word organic now. Uh, <laughs> organic. Um, but that kind of stuff, and we sort of eschewed these boxes with Chinese lettering on them and crystal balls and all that stuff because they just instantly tell an audience that that they are kind of looking at things that were purchased at a magic shop. And so to realize that I'm now in a space where any prop is essentially an impromptu thing, like anything is fair game, any yeah. magic trick uh, is, is kind of overwhelming um, just because there's so much that you can do, so much that can happen. Um, but it's it's been a real trip. I've been doing it for, I think, three years now, and I've learned so much about being with an audience, and sleight of hand, and yeah, it's really been a trip. What are some of the things that you've learned? Well, because it is, it is different to, than doing, you know, Walker, you have a show, whereas you were just performing sets for people from yeah. time to time in different spaces. Yeah. Now this is an event. People buy tickets. 100%. It's totally a mental shift. That thing I was saying about ace assemblies is no joke because it's like, you know, the thing with walk around that's so tough is getting their attention. But what's cool about that is it means you don't have to really use any misdirection because they are already in a state, a continuous state of misdirection. Mm -hmm. So when they're like, okay, yeah, uh, we bought a ticket and there's a, a table with a single light on it and uh, we're going to watch your hands, not because we're trying to figure the trick out, but because you have asked us to. Like, that's what we bought a ticket for. Yeah. Um, is like, oh, shoot. Yeah. Like, I have to use sort of a, I think about sandpaper a lot. And it's, as an analogy for sleight of hand, like using an increasingly finer grit yeah. of sandpaper. And since we're in Tony's house, he's like, he's like the finest grit. Like he just gets stuff smooth in a, in a way that we didn't even realize. But yeah, realizing that like I had to do things at a, a much higher level um, than I necessarily had felt comfortable with before where people are really burning my hands, not because they're trying to give me a hard time, but just because that's the situation I've created. Yeah. Um, doing magic at a table is really hard. Like you get really used to doing a lot of these moves. So I have to, it's almost funny. It's like, I have this joke I make and during the joke, I like, I get one leg up so I can sit on my foot to get a little bit of height over the table. But like that changes things a lot. And, um, I've just learned slowly. I'm learning how to let people respond. Um, no matter how much time I give, I always feel like I need to give people a little more space to react to things. Um, I still have a tendency to sometimes step on punchlines a little bit, but yeah. I, I've gotten better at it. That was a, a really big thing I had because I was like, um, be very dismissive. Like I do some effect and kind of immediately make a joke about it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I learned a lot about that. Um, and seeing the way different audiences responded to different things and kind of making making peace with that 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 like it's not going to be the same reaction every time yeah um learning how to stick to a script it's still really hard because i love to talk um but but that was really valuable um 
a really interesting thing that happened kind of recently, if you don't mind a specific. Please. So, actually two things, really. One, I was reading the Johnny Thompson books, and in Teller's introduction, he talks about doing the, the Double Dove production and how it's just this like impossible feat of getting the silks to fall in this certain way and just all these things that will never be the same um, each time. And he said one of the things people who work with live animals have to learn is that it's never going to be quite the same each time, so you have to just make peace with that. And, and then he said, you know, the irony is once you kind of decide that every time you do the move it's going to be a little bit different, that's actually when the silks start falling the exact same way every time and you just start nailing it. So I read that and that really captivated me. And then I was doing the egg bag and there's this move where you're, you're pretending to make it look like there, there's the egg is gone. And, uh, but normally you know where the egg is <laughs> and, uh, I did it and just, just, through a fluke of the way I, I held things and the way my hands were, I, I basically actually convinced myself that there was no egg and had, you know, that sense of like your stomach dropping you get when a trick goes wrong. Yeah. I was like, there's an egg on the floor right now and it's broken in a million pieces. And so that happened. And then I realized that I had just, the way I was holding the bag, I had kind of deceived myself. And it really kind of opened my opened my mind that, you know, to try to push technique to a place, obviously you're not really going to like fool yourself every time, but yeah. that, you know, to kind of have that as an ideal, like what, what would it take for me to do this move such that I could almost forget that I'm actually doing a move? Yeah. Um, I do the cups and balls every once in a while on the show. Um, and there have been one or two times where I'm like, oh, shoot. And then I realized that there there's a lime under all the cups. And then I kind of just went into muscle memory. But yeah. I almost I'm like, wait, why are there no limes in my pocket? Yeah. Uh, so so that's kind of funny. Um, and learning how to take feedback and criticism. And I'm still getting I'm still learning how to do that. I as people who have given me notes and ideas for the show know it takes me like a really long time to incorporate those things into the into the show um so why is that i think well i think one like the first one or two times i did the show i could have done any like if you had made a suggestion i'd be like all right let's do it but now i've done it i think a couple hundred times and and when you're doing that, you're building muscle memory, so it makes it harder to break that. Now you're not just adding something, you're also like breaking... Uh, the rhythm of the show. Yeah, rhythm of the show. Um, so I, I try to do it gradually. Um, but yeah, I'm learning how to kind of take feedback from people um, and just filter it the right way and... Yeah, just learning to spend time with an audience, I think, is really important. Um, I also think there's this thing that every magic lecture, generally there's like a 20-minute hunk where the person explains that it's not about the tricks. It's just about you and don't don't imitate me, you know, be yourself, kind of fit. And I think all of us, when we hear that, we're like, yeah, 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 I know, but 
but I kind of want to do X, Y, and Z or like, I'll, yeah. I'll be myself once, once that, once I am comfortable walking up to 10 people in a party and interrupting their conversation. Yeah. So really getting that point driven home that it's like, no, you should actually like find that thing about yourself that you're interested in and share that and not like I'll do it tomorrow, but like do it, do it now. And don't, it's not like, Oh, once I build this cool new magic trick as my new closer, then I'll be able to finally kind of share my point of view with an audience. No, do it, do it now. Yeah. And that will give you the, the closer or that will give you all those beats. Yeah. Um, so kind of slowly learning that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Knowing what your character is clarifies every other decision you have to make when you're building a show. Yeah. Because it puts constraints on it, right? And that's hugely important when you're making creative decisions. It's like, what are the boundaries of this thing? Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of still finding... I'm still finding that character. I'm, I'm still sort of spending a lot of time thinking about the writing and the script. And I, and I think as that gets more solidified, I'll be able to really dig in and kind of think about me and what I want to put across. Um, and I've done some thinking about it. Um, but yeah, it really, it really helps a lot of decisions get made. Um, and gives you like so many, the writing process at least gives you so many opportunities for, for things that, you know, I didn't know you're allowed to do. Um, (laughs) uh, Cause we like, we think of magic in these units of tricks. So realizing that when you've got kind of a framework, um, it just gives you so many opportunities, um, to really build stuff. Yeah. What's the, been the hardest aspect of writing the show? Um, writing the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been really hard. And I think, um, the hardest part has been getting, getting in sync because what would happen would be I would have the way I'd been doing the show that was sort of a mix of what was written and then just things, you know, as you, when you perform, you just develop things that you say um, outside of what's written. And so kind of getting a relationship going where I say what's in the script, but when I write something new, it goes into the script. A thing that happened a lot would be I would sit down to write and then, as I think always happens, once you kind of get warmed up, it's like something I know nothing about working out. But, <laughs> like, you know, you, you, I go to the gym and not enough at all. Not even, I won't even get into numbers. But the thing I do know, <laughs> the reason that I think it's okay is, like, every time I, I'm, like, exercising, midway through, you get this big endorphin rush. And you're like, oh, I'm going to do this every day. This is going to be who I am now. And it's like, no, that's that's why it's good to work out like a moderate amount is because when you do it, you feel like you can do all this other stuff. And writing is kind of the same way where once you kind of break break through some of those barriers and you start getting a flow and ideas are coming out, you're like, oh, I'm going to do this and that and this and I'm going to say that and I'm going to do this trick and that thing. Um, and then the next day you're like, oh shoot, I can't, that's going to take a long time. I'm going to just go back to the way I was doing it. So, so finding a way to, um, kind of make changes that I'd be able to incorporate. Um, and, uh, I had, you know, I had some really good people pushing on me. Adam Rubin has been helping me with the show 
since day one. Uh, just like with everything, it was always just subtly like, hey, so how, how's the script coming on? Did you, uh, ha- how's, the, how's the script going? Um, <laughs> we talked yesterday. He just needles me with stuff. Um, uh, Derek has been in town and has been really helpful with like helping me see the show. And his big thing was to sort of find that narrative arc. And he was sort of the same way where it seemed to be like, Hey, how's that, uh, how's that narrative arc coming along? Um, and, uh, yeah. So having people to really push me and be like, Hey, how, how's that writing part going? And, and also having people who I really admired be like, you know, the, the tricks, are fine. And I'd be like, no, but there's this thing I want to do this and that. And I'd be like, no, the tricks are fine. Work on the work on the writing. And yeah. the irony is that working on the writing has actually given birth to a number of effects in the show. So yeah. the more you kind of dig into that process, then you start getting these ideas popping up. Um, so yeah, that's been really cool. Um, Adam Blumenthal, besides owning Tannins, is also an awesome lighting designer and also just like has really great theatrical sensibilities. So mm-hmm. like talking with him and like uh, as he sort of ramped up some of the technical aspects of the show, getting comfortable with that. And um, yeah, that's been really fun. Uh, yeah, it's nice. It's really nice to to be in a store that has like lighting cues and sound design. Yeah. Like that's a very cool thing that uh, most people like would never even consider like they they would never have even thought that that could be a thing to be in a retail space that like has lighting design and sound cues that are scripted, right? Yeah. And so like and I'd never been the only time I'd ever been in ones was in Copperfield's Tannins. And but that's oh. like but that's like a very you know what you're getting into sort of thing. Yeah. But when you're in an actual store that is actually open during the day that actually sells things, and then you go and you see a magic show yeah. at the end, you don't expect, like, literally the production quality of it. It's yeah. very cool. Yeah, one of the hardest things to learn, there's a moment where I push a button and all these lighting cues come on, and it took me a really long time to be able to push the button. Everyone is always like, oh, <laughs> and it always, I would always be like, "This is pretty cool, right?" Or just make some kind of a side. Yeah. And I had to learn like push that button, don't own it, don't. Just, yep. Yeah. So that that took a while. Um, and part of the reason it came about, there was a situation where a, a famous famous person wanted to see like a private version of the show, um, and we who was it? Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, me and Adam, specifically Adam, just like went for broke, mm-hmm. rebuilding parts of the store, installing lighting. Um, he, he was there like four days in a row until like three in the morning, rebuilding all this stuff. And like it, where people were coming in, just it's like amazing. Um, and then this event basically fell through. And it's, you ever see the movie Big Night? No. There's this. It's basically about these guys who own an Italian restaurant and Louis Prima is coming to dinner, who is a celebrity. So they start calling journalists and making this crazy meal and Louis Prima never comes to dinner. So as we were kind of during this whole process, I would just be like, Louis Prima's coming to dinner. Um, 
But then not too long after that, there were other situations where the fact that there was lighting and sound design and that the store looked centered, that was a big thing. Um, it was really good that those things happened. So learning about that process, um, learning to get comfortable under pressure has, has probably been the biggest, the biggest thing I've had to learn because what, what's your, what's your mindset? So, um, the mindset that I've learned is I think a lot of times when we're in a particularly high pressure situation, our attitude is, uh, I wonder if this is going to go well, like you're, like you're, you know, playing in the Super Bowl. Yeah. I wonder if I'm going to win or I wonder if I'm going to lose. And I guess I have to prepare myself for how I'm going to feel afterwards. I hope I'm ready now to do a good show so that I can feel comfortable and happy later. Mm -hmm. Is that like the thing I want to win is this magic show. I want this show to go well. And what I kind of learned is um, the real victory I want to have is like the right now. Like right now, it's 20 minutes before the show and I'm really stressed out. If I can get some kind of foothold now, I'm, I'm done. Because that like ultimately, if the show goes badly, I'm going to be like, man, this sucks now because I feel bad because the show didn't go well. I wish I hadn't had to also be stressing out for those random 20 minutes before the show was going. Why couldn't I have just been relaxing? And if the show goes really well, I'm like, I don't want to look back and be like, man, why, why was I tearing myself up for 20 minutes um, now knowing that the show went well? So learning how to, and it's easy to say that, yeah. um, but really learning to, to kind of have that like, this is this is scary. What's about to happen? You know, Louis Prima's in the or whatever, <laughs> whoever's in the audience. Yeah. Um, but kind of getting comfortable now, um, and that of course, kind of like that, uh, that dove steal. The irony is that once you get in that mindset, that is the mindset that an audience like that's what you need in order to. If you're walking into the show like, oh, are, are they going to like it? Am I going to screw up? It's going to cause trouble and your hands are going to shake and you're, you're going to miss lines. So that's that's been the biggest thing to learn. Do you also feel that once you get out, so it's the anticipation, not the actual doing of the thing. So once the show, quote unquote, starts, yeah, everything just mellows out real fast. Not necessarily mellows out, but like the it's a show I've done more than once. So. Generally, once I'm in it, it, it's a little more natural. I know the progression of things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just been really, really important. Learning to s slow my hands down. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say that's the biggest thing. I've, I'm still learning it, but doing a show for 18 people is a good way to, like, it's a very manageable <laughs> way. But, but it does give you a sense of, like, even 18 people for me still feels like, Oh Jesus! This is this is the big time. Oh, I better not screw this up. So, um, so yeah, it's been it's been really good for that. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so you're doing a show in a magic store. You've worked at the magic store. How, what 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 is the progression that you think young people getting into magic, or not necessarily even young people getting into magic, just people getting into magic should take 
now in the 21st century? How should someone go about learning hmm. magic? Um, I've noticed a funny thing, which is a lot of the kids who come to the magic shop and buy lots and lots of decks of cards also buy books. So it's kind of this cool thing where like the, these two sort of poles are they're moving outwards. So people are getting really into like the collectible cards and this Instagram stuff and cardistry. But then also when they are studying magic, because they kind of have this um, avenue for exploring the kind of more like uh, kinetic visual stuff that when they're actually talking about, you know, magic with a capital M, they're taking it very seriously. You know, they're not doing packet tricks and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I like, I, I'm less interested in sort of trying to like dictate what, what the progression should be because, you know, I, I didn't grow up with, with a phone in my hand. So I only have a limited amount of advice that I can give to people who are growing up with the ability to Google any card trick and learn it in five minutes. Um, and these things do not work backwards. So it's like, it's not going anywhere. Um, so my sense is still, I think in general, when a kid's getting into magic, they should just be absorbing stuff from every possible direction, geeking out, watch every ridiculous magic tutorial just be like taking stuff in yeah and i think you get to a you'll get to a point where you're like okay i think i need you know like in in every disney movie there's like the kid who wants to play golf and then he discovers that the world's greatest golfer lives in a trailer downtown <laughs> and he's sworn to never play golf before and somehow he falls in love with the kid's mother that's a whole, whole other thing yeah um but you know eventually you get to a point where you're like i think i need not just to be learning more, but kind of learning about how to curate this knowledge and, and sort of these larger lessons. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we were all at one time that kid who wanted to know as much about magic as humanly possible. So, like, who am I to stand in the way of that? Because if I was 13, you know, probably... I mean, maybe I'd be reading greater magic, but I definitely <laughs> wouldn't only be reading greater magic. I would be all over every download and just the whole deal. Yeah. So I think I think that's important. Um, I I do think that doing magic for people is really important. Um, there, I was reading one of Darren Brown's books, and there's a line, and he says, "There is no magic except in performance," and that really really hit me because that wasn't my mindset at the time. Um, I think there's just a lot to learn and a lot of stuff that just a lot of variables that just don't come into play unless you are in front of people doing it. And again, this doesn't mean put on your best suit and go to Denny's and walk around to every table. Whatever performance means to you, I think yeah. is fine. But uh, I think putting the work out there um, and gathering data about people and, and how they respond to stuff is really important. Um, and I really, I don't know what entertainment's going to be like in the future or what media is going to be like in the future or, or, or anything. Um, but, but I think that those are to the extent that magic and being a magician will stay the same. 
I think it will be rooted in that sort of period of study and then analysis and then kind of pushing it outwards into the world and sort of testing out all the stuff you learn. Um, and I guess the other thing I would say from doing the show that I've learned um, is uh, this thing happens where you learn a lot of magic when you're young and you learn all this theory and this, oh, crazy, amazing. You look here and they look there and you look at the coin <laughs> and they look at the coin. Um, and then I think when you start doing some gigs and working and realizing how different it is to do walk around magic at a loud bar mitzvah than all the stuff you read about in the Slidini book or whatever, it becomes very easy to get kind of cynical and, and to kind of, oh, this isn't practical. That's, that's, that's not how people really think. And, um, one of the things I've learned from doing this show where you really do have people sitting is I've kind of had the opportunity to go back and appreciate all the, all these past masters, even people who we wouldn't necessarily call like master magicians. I just realize how much wisdom they have yeah. and that all this theory stuff is like, is real, like. The place you look or the way you turn a card over or relaxing your hand, it's its real stuff. And, it, and so I think it's worth performing, but pushing through that part that, you know, performing and you're like, oh, here are the three tricks that are amazing to people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, study, perform, but don't abandon all the wacky yeah. weird stuff. You can't let performing be limiting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, that's that kind of mentality of like you know find find the best and also like just in our entertainment culture now i know i realized that i had a thought in my head completed it and then moved to a different thing Go. faster than i was doing it with my mouth so Go back take a minute yeah tie those strings so, together <laughs> so uh and now i've just totally lost everything um but in our inter entertainment culture now there's like this this idea audiences are used to uh, a performer churning out new material right so it's right. like here's the new thing that they're working on we saw the old stuff we appreciated it, we loved it but we saw it and we don't want to see it again right right um and so like in the old days especially in magic this is where i was going in the old days especially in magic you know you could have your act and you could do your act for 30 years and that's not that's not what our the the culture wants now. And it's not because they have already seen it. It's because something you've been doing for 30 years isn't current. It doesn't resonate with the audience. It's not just about it's not superficial entertainment anymore. They want to connect in a deeper way. Right. And so like you we're in uh we're in a place where you could do something that's a little less polished but more authentic hmm. and it be appreciated as much or more than something that is shiny, but clearly old. Yeah. And not, not for you. Yeah. Um, as sort of an aside, one of the less, one of the like really simple lessons I've learned from doing this show is, uh, never to talk to an audience about other audiences. And it's a, a lesson that's taken, you ever tell someone about one of your dreams 
And as you tell the story, it just sort of disintegrates. (laughs) And you're like, man, I'm never going to do that again. But then you do it again. Yeah. I've learned this lesson because like funny stuff happens or somebody says something that connects to something that happened before. Yeah. And I've learned that no matter what, the biggest conceit of a magic show is that this is only happening once. Yeah. And like just people just can't relate to this experience you have of like, hey, remember that time you were in a room saying the same thing you've said for like hundreds of times before? Like they don't have any yeah. relationship to that. Um, so that was a kind of aside. Pull me back onto the, the thread. I think we're, <laughs> uh, we're just talking authenticity about authenticity and, and, you know, making something that feels relevant and current. Yeah. Um, isn't the 30 year old act that you toured with. Yeah. It's, it's a really hard thing because that's what we have learned and been told is you know you 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 take a few classics and you just polish them and you you kind of find your things to say and and find all these little bits of business and just get really comfortable doing that um and now we're kind of in in this place where people want a lot of magic um i think in general this is something that happens to artists i I see it a lot with like novels where somebody's totally obscure and they take all their stuff, like all the things from their childhood and probably all the their worst breakups and everything, and they put it into a book. And then they give it to the world, and the world's like, oh, we love this. Um, give us another one in a year. Yeah. And you're like, no, I, just, I used that all was my, my whole life. I used all the stuff. So yeah. I think it's kind of the same thing in magic where you're like, and I think people are dealing with this now where, you know, the world is saying like, hey, yeah, we want to we want to do a you know, special or whatever. Mm. And it's like, no, this stuff took a really long time to polish. Uh, I think it's important to learn about your process. Yeah. Um, it's something that I've sort of used this show to kind of learn about the process I create so that like now when there have been times that I've had to create stuff kind of on a tighter timeline, I, I just have a sense for how I work. Yeah. Um, I do think that as you build strength as a performer, once you've got those muscles in place, um, it, it you can it makes it easier to do new material. Yeah. Um, it it is, doesn't necessarily have to be those tricks specifically. Um, I'll also say I kind of have this fantasy. I don't I don't know if it's true. It's probably not true, but I kind of have this fantasy that like back in the day, magicians were like long 100 or so years 200 years ago mm-hmm. magicians were really good um yeah. but they just didn't have as many names for things you know so they like they were they just had more kind of natural like they're good at palming and misdirection and fake passes but so that the t- the techniques weren't as refined and there wasn't kind of as much there wasn't like a taxonomy of moves yeah but they were still good yeah now i don't think this is really true they probably if we saw like a guy doing the cups and balls in the 1500s would be like this guy does not know what he's doing but i kind of like this idea it makes me think about slidini right because he's like he's not like naming things he's just like to him he's just doing it yeah and it's not these moves aren't like individual parts it's just all moving in kind of flowing um i kind of think Molini maybe was the same way that he was really good and had a lot of refinement but probably wouldn't necessarily be able to break down every individual thing yeah um and so i think that if 
like as people develop that and again those kind of like been learning the cups and balls and it's great again to kind of develop those muscles to be like holding out and yeah selling a vanish and i think that as you get more comfortable with those things just like the sort of general skill of being a magician it makes uh creating new material um a little bit less daunting mm-hmm. um but i don't know that's just this like crazy crazy thought <laughs> um, i mean I, that's that's the dream is that these historical legendary figures are, you know, as good as what you imagine. I mean, that's why that that was a huge influence on me when I was young is I would watch Dan and Dave and Ricky and Tony and people like that online mm-hmm. and go, oh, well, this is what sleight of hand looks like. Because yeah. I grew up in a place where there weren't any magicians. And so they would talk about vernon and charlie miller and mike skinner and you know these these sort of bastions of magic that came before them and i will go well obviously they were as good they were better than ricky and dan and dave and tony yeah and then you go back and you watch a video and you're like yeah they were pretty good (laughs) right they were they were good yeah um it's a yeah so i so that fantasy resonates with me yeah and also just like i forget what it's like People who play the trumpet, like embouchure or something like that. Embouchure, yeah. Yeah, so you like kind of develop this set of muscles yeah. in, in your whatever. And I, I've the best sleight of hand people I've met, it's kind of like they have a good embouchure. Like they're approaching it. Like the best example is like Steve Forty. Mm-hmm. Like every, I think he could probably just, if you just showed him a move, I think just he's developed like a sense of, himself and why he does move certain ways that like when he learns something it's sort of being plugged into that yeah. kind of world he knows how he handles cards and yeah yeah i think the, the people who are really good are they have a very clear sense of how they handle things and they're able to pull stuff into that yeah so yeah that's a fascinating thing too is watching somebody take something that isn't theirs and then without even having to think about it immediately dress it down mm. and then Im- and and assimilate it that i think is is like when you really know yourself as a craftsman yeah which then leads to fine art but it's that it's that sort of i like the idea of that thing and i just through intuition through muscle memory through whatever it is i don't mm. know how to explain it but yeah. it's just that i can now create it's not, it is creation, but it's like, because it's not the same as that, but it's a version of that, which is inherently your own. Yeah. Anything particular coming to mind? No. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of good, good examples. Again, going, going to that Thompson book. Like yeah. Every trick in there, you can tell he's, he's like stamped. It's just got his stamp. It's like he, you can tell that he did it thousands of times and you know just found a way to really make it fit and and really make it fit him and Mm kind of with that thing i was saying about being able to fool yourself with a move you can every trick so far in that book that i've read the way he does it i can tell it's a move that you would be able to forget that you're doing like it, it it's always like there's a there's that thing like the the faux Papa Stevens control, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, this guy can do all the riffle work. 
Um, and so the fact that he's made this choice to kind of do a different version of that. Um, but like, I a hundred percent know that he could just do that, um, automatically. So studying his stuff is just like such a lesson in expertise. That's cool. Hmm. Um, I unfortunately am about to have to leave for the airport. So, Oh boy. Let's, uh, let's wrap. Yeah. Let's wrap it up. Um, lightning round questions. Favorite movie? Uh, 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> <laughs> okay great yep. uh, favorite tv show favorite tv show uh the office yeah oh, that's a good choice uh you kind of look like john krasinski actually oh man i'll take it <laughs> um favorite book um favorite fiction book uh oh 100 years of solitude gabriel garcia marquez yeah uh favorite nonfiction. um up in the old hotel by Joseph Mitchell. Favorite fine artist? Oh, man. Uh, I like... Man, I gotta come back to that one. Okay. Uh, favorite music artist? I really like Tom Waits. Right on. Yeah. Uh, favorite food? Pasta. <laughs> <laughs> um, favorite fine artist? Come back to it. I really like Agnes Martin. Okay. Um, she does these like very minimalist canvas, like uh, kind of like the, the the blank canvases that everyone makes fun of, but they're they're like kind of awesome. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I really like her. That's cool. What is it about it that? Uh, it's just so. I generally think about the world in a very like analytical. A lot of magician, you know, like this is this. And, and this is just like a wash of just like, not just, just like output. It's, it's not engaging the rational mind, yeah. but it still evokes a feeling. Um, so yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. And then the last question, uh, what is the moment of astonishment that flabbergasted you the hardest and not just being fooled, but I mean, really gut punch yeah. broke you. Um, basically that there's like a magic camp like a class at a, a camp where they taught lots of things. And he came in as a guest and, uh, you know, the robot coins. No. So basically the trick is that you put a deck of cards onto a glass, cover it with a handkerchief and you vanish four coins. And each time it vanishes, you hear like a ping of the coin falling into the glass. Um, but what he did, it was like totally impromptu. So he was, they're like, can you do a magic trick? And he's like, yeah, does someone have a deck of cards and a mug and a handkerchief and some coins? And, you know, literally he's on one side of the room. He did all these great complete vanishes, coin vanishes, and then you just hear it and he dumps it out at the end. And it was just like, <laughs> loved it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I thank appreciate you. it. Do you want to plug your show? My show is called Magic After Hours, magicafterhours.com. There you go. <laughs> Noah, thank you so much. Thank it was a you, pleasure. Elliot.